0: Welcome to Agatha Christie She Watched, our spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of the mystery genre's greatest writer. I'm Bill Peschel of Peschel Press, publisher of the annotated novels of Agatha Christie, and today we're talking about risque subtitles, manuscript theft, secret agents, and tax evasion. It's Agatha and the Midnight Murders, the 2020 movie, and the third of a series starring Agatha Christie as a fictional character. But first, let me introduce my partner in marriage as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Peschel. Teresa, how are you doing today?
1: I'm feeling fine. I'm not feeling any pain. I'm still floating on a cloud of Valium from the dental procedure I had earlier to, earlier today. And uh, hopefully it will last all the way through to the end of the podcast, because this was a painful movie. And... It's a good thing I'm full of Valium, because this could have been so good, and it wasn't.
0: Probably would have been better to have it during the movie. That I needed the the Valium for the movie? For the Valium for the movie. (laughs) Well, it wasn't as bad as as the Sarah Phelps one that we didn't like, so... Uh, Which one was that? It wasn't Witness for the Prosecution...
1: Uh, The ABC murders, because that that really had nothing to do with Agatha Christie and everything to do with Sarah Phelps. The three Agathas that we've watched, Agatha and the Truth of Murder, Agatha and the Curse of Ishtar, and now the last one, Agatha and the Midnight Murders, were all written by the same person, just like Sarah Phelps wrote her own. These were written by Tom Dalton, and he wanted to make Agatha into a fictional character. So you have to consider these as being in a parallel universe, like two or three universes over. One of the strange pieces here is because he is using Agatha as a fictional character, and she does age a little bit, but she doesn't age that much that she turns into an entirely different actress. So that piece of continuity, which could help, is lost. Any continuity between the three movies is lost. For Midnight Murders, that piece of continuity really mattered.
0: Especially because they used a character from The Truth of Murder. They used Travis Pickford.
1: Who is a cockney thug.
0: on man boxer, I think he was described as. Yes, he
1: was a a boxer. Obviously a lightweight because uh, he may be tall, but he is way too skinny to be any kind of a heavyweight. Let's just say that frequently he assists the police in their inquiries. And he was one of the suspects in the murder of Florence Nightingale, before, but he was able to claim that he had nothing to do with it because his boots were three sizes larger than the footprint that was left in the compartment when Florence Nightingale was sh- bludgeoned to death. But he has a ties to the criminal world. Right. He is a person of less than... Uh, I'm going to ramble today. I can tell. I'm going to have to keep you (laughs) on track here because let's start with the
0: movie itself. It starts in 1940 during the Blitz. The the movie opens with this weird scene of an air raid warden going through the rubble.
1: All alone, by the way. All alone in the dark. There are apparently nobody around and the air raid warden, all suited up with the gas mask. We can't see their
0: identity, which is important.
1: He or it sees this hand, this gloved hand, waving from underneath the rubble save me save me save me and they come up to the victim's hand and you think oh they're going to save and they pull off the glove and there's this beautiful diamond ring and the air raid warden tries to steal the ring and the ring doesn't come off and so they pull out this big knife and start
0: backs away and
1: backs away as 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 the air raid warden saws off this woman's finger to get the ring I don't know that that sort of thing happened, but it is an indication of what you're going to get in the movie, and yet it was so poorly handled. One of the most irritating things about this movie is that it could have been really good all the things that you need for a tense locked room mystery are there not just a locked room but a closed circle a tense closed circle locked room mystery with concerns about inland revenue concerns about spying concerns about being killed by a bomb everything is there and it starts with this and then they don't do anything with it immediately you move from this To Agatha riding in a car in the dark with Travis, whom she met during her 11-day disappearance as one of the suspects in the murder of Nightingale Shore. And I was reminded, watching this, of this great scene in National Treasure. That's the uh, Nicolas Cage movie. At one point, he's asking Abigail and Riley, Nicolas Cage, as you know, why did you ask Ian? Well, getting somebody out of FBI custody is a criminal offense, and Ian was the only criminal we knew. So, of course, you go with the only criminal you know. So here's Agatha driving through the darkness. Bombs are falling around her, or not quite yet. Well, no, they're not. She's on her way to this rendezvous in a seedy part of London. Sell her manuscript for this huge amount of money because she is desperate for money. So she's going to sell it not to an actual publisher where it would be published and she would be taxed, but so that she can sell it for £20,000 and pocket the money without the tax revenueers knowing she needs to have a bodyguard. And since Travis Bickford is the only criminal she knows, he hires him as a bodyguard.
0: it's set up in a really strange way, because first of all, selling the manuscript... Okay, maybe there's a collector who wants, and this is for Curtin, which was Poirot's swan song. Yes. But it also is supposed to come with what she calls a deed, which I guess conveys rights to the manuscript to the purchaser. And rights to publish it. And rights to publish it. So they're paying £20,000 for a book that they are not a book publisher, but they'll get a manuscript. I guess they could publish it at any time for which she'll get paid in cash.
1: Yeah, they'll get paid, and she gets her £20,000 up front, but she doesn't have it officially on record with Inland Revenue, although I could see, talking about this, I can see a plot problem here, <laughs> because wouldn't Inland Revenue wonder why she had given the manu- essentially given the manuscript away? Because as far as they know, that's what she did, and by the way, how did you manage to pay off all of these debts and back taxes when you haven't been selling any books?
0: Right. Now, part of this is true because Agatha had her troubles with tax officials, both Inland Revenue and the Internal Revenue Service. And this is because at the time she was starting to write, she didn't consider herself a writer. She considered herself a housewife and she earned extra money on the side. And that wasn't taxable. But as she became a best-selling writer, they started taking notice of her.
1: Let me clarify. Inland Revenue is British tax authorities and of course the IRS is the United States tax authorities they have different rules and they do not care what you pay or they didn't then, they do not care what you paid to the other tax revenue service.
0: Right, which led to all kinds of problems because this was kind of a new problem where you had a British writer making money in America and getting money sent back to her and without the government getting their hands on it. So it was kind of something that evolved over The teens and the 20s, because there was a very noticeable, I think, P.G. Woodhouse, maybe, or there was somebody else who got into tax. Rafael
1: Sabatini.
0: Right. That was it. the Sabatini case. He was the first one that actually went to court and they ruled that, yes, American authorities can tax his income from America. So they started doing this with Christie. But he ran into trouble because Christie would be taxed for the income in America and then inland revenue would send her a bill for the tax that for the for the same amount of money that she was earning in America
1: even though she had already paid the taxes to the American government
0: no tax reciprocity
1: so she was being doubly taxed weren't they at like a 90% tax rate by this time for her
0: during the war when you get up to a certain level, yeah, the tax rate was something like 80 or 90%. This was also a case where, like right now we have the tax code, which complicated as is, is you do have rules and regulations to go by. You have guidance. Back in those days, it was basically whatever in, the law was, whatever Inland Revenue said it was. and Which
1: you, meant that if you talked to Mr. X, Mr. Y could completely contradict it and say, cough up again.
0: Yeah, or uh, it's set wrong, it's going to be set bigger, and you could be taxed retroactively as well, even though there was no law covering it at the time. And it caused tremendous problems for Christie throughout her lifetime until roughly the 60s or so, when they finally started setting up companies like Agatha Christie Limited, that they could park the income and she would get paid a salary. But up until then, she was actually contemplating at one point declaring bankruptcy. And she did not want to do was what a lot of the other British celebrities and high income people did, which was they became tax exiles. They would live out of the country. And as long as they didn't spend more than six months or some some period of time in England, they didn't have to pay British tax. The story behind this for needing money is true. It's just that it's a weird way of having her solve the problem. And they didn't
1: say anything. They didn't really give a good setup for that. This is what I mean about how poorly written this episode was, and yet the ideas behind it are fantastic. You could have had something, an opening meeting where she is in a nice, clean office where she has the tax revenuers there, and they have the big guillotine behind them, and they're saying, (laughs) I'm still feeling that Valium, folks. They're saying, even if you declare bankruptcy, we're going to take every dime you have ever made. And you don't see the pressure that she's under. All you're getting is a little bit of story that she's telling Travis in the car. Oh, I have to sell the manuscript for £20,000. And there's a little bit of banter about 55000 And then she says that's the number of words. They didn't do any kind of a good job setting up why she was so desperate. You don't really get the impression that she's desperate. You just get the impression that she just doesn't want to pay some taxes on some income.
0: Well, and she doesn't necessarily say that straight. She's wanting the money, but she's not saying what she wants it for. Nor did they actually say why she had to go to this rundown hotel in the edge of nowhere in criminal land when they could have done this over the Ritz, because all it is is her handing a manuscript over, getting a packet of money in a well-sealed envelope.
1: Exactly, exactly. And why does she need a bodyguard? This, again, is a very poor setup, because if you would have started out with Agatha in the tax office being threatened with uh, legal fees and a lawsuit and bankruptcy, and if you don't pay up this amount of money immediately, uh, we're going to hang you up by your toes, while she's riding home and figuring out what she can do you see all these newspaper stories of that London is falling apart as criminals are taking it over during the air raid and oh my god they have been finding dead bodies who have been mutilated their fingers cut off necks hacked at wrists hacked off in order to steal jewelry and if you see that sort of thing then you can think oh my god there is a reason why we saw that piece with the air raid warden and there's another reason why Agatha would need a bodyguard because you don't need a bodyguard if you're going to have tea at the Ritz and you hand the person on the other side of the table you hand them the wrapped package and they hand you the money again in a little nice envelope and no one will ever know but this was set up really poorly
0: we end up at this hotel on the dark side of town and there's people in the lobby
1: yeah they're in the bar of the lobby
0: bar of the lobby there's these people that we don't know anything about Agatha's there with her bodyguard our chinese person Frankie Lei and Juan Yuan
1: uh, Jun is what Jun, they said Jun like, Jun, Jun. Jun, Jun Yuan is we'll say, his translator and that was very amusing because Frankie Lee would say various things and Jun the translator and i'm sure translators the world around all we are just rolling on the floor where they know what he's saying may or may not be appropriate in chinese but what It's wildly inappropriate in English. And so she just changes what he says to what he should be saying.
0: There's a scene here where he's looking over the bodyguard that he hired and checking him out. And he says, in Chinese, you look like a peasant come to Macau for his first blowjob. And she has to go. He approves of you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you need to put on a coat and you'll be fine. Put on a suit jacket. I'm sure translators everywhere really recognize this, where what you're being, what is, you're having to translate the insult into something that isn't going to be an insult. (laughs) Agatha and Travis meet Frankie Lee and and June. Yeah, Frankie and June and Rocco the bodyguard, the Maltese Falcon, he's from Malta, and they are getting ready to do the handoff, and then the air raid, sorry, starts. The air raid warden comes in, this young Irish girl, And she is obviously outclassed and out intimidated. And she doesn't seem to really know what she's doing, but she is able to push everybody, including the other two women sitting there in the bar who followed Agatha into the bar, as well as the Italian owner, the the bartender and Sir Campbell and his cookie of the day. Or not Sir Campbell, Sir Malcolm Campbell why are these people here in this seedy hotel on the edge of town? Who knows? And of course, when it comes down to, we have to go down into the basements, into the cellars to protect ourselves from bombs. Of course, the bar owner, uh, name is Eli, he objects to going down into the basement. And why? Because apparently it is loaded with black market goods. But when you go down into the to the sub-basement there are no black market goods it's miscellaneous household furniture with you know pieces of art vases and lamps and stuff like that with holland cloths thrown over half of it it's not obviously a black male organization
0: yeah it's not a black market or black
1: market sorry
0: and there's that thread was never picked up again so again you get this plot thread erased and then forgotten about
1: which could have been good frankie has a claustrophobic attack okay that ramps up the tension
0: he has to go into a small room. He wants a room with that an outside, outside wall. With an outside wall so he feels safe.
1: I guess if the bombs fall, you know, and the rubble opens up the wall, he can escape out into the falling bombs. And, of course, they're hearing the air raid sirens, and they're not necessarily hearing bombs dropping. Yeah. And, and, in fact, they didn't. And then uh, Travis offers Frankie a, a, gla- a drink from his hip flask. And then very soon thereafter, Frankie dies mysteriously. Is it a heart attack? Well, who knows? Of course, when you see the blood coming out of his mouth, you know that it's not. And then you end up with death number two, which is... And we couldn't decide what was happening because this is where Rocco the bodyguard takes on Clarence the bartender, and Rocco is like a foot taller and probably outweighs him, skinny as he is. Clarence ends up on the floor, and yet when we see him later... He's not only dead, but half his skull looks like it's been caved in. But when you backhand someone and knock them to the floor, that's not going
0: to happen. It seemed like he was hit in the head, fell over, hit his head on the floor too hard, and died. But that's not what it looked like. It's hard to tell because of all this is done in a brown wash. It's filmed in a brown wash like a haze.
1: And again, this was a missed plot thread. If Rocco backhanded Clarence and knocked him to the floor so he wouldn't interfere with Rocco's clients, well, that one thing but then he's told later that oh you killed clarence so now we're up to two bodies frankie's body and clarence's body frankie has been poisoned mysteriously clarence is dead on the floor but there's no reason for this to happen so why was clarence dead is clarence dead and we work this out later is clarence dead because he knew something he wasn't supposed to know about the deal and that's why somebody killed him but again this was a plot thread that went nowhere
0: also the case of the missing manuscript as well because yes. in the middle of all this
1: the manuscript gets stolen right out from underneath travis's nose he swears he had nothing to do with it but there it is right out from underneath his nose
0: agatha's purse and agatha gave it to him to hold for while he, she was doing something i think talking to the owner talking to the chinese couple in the room off the main room yes
1: as they're trying to figure things out and then then the manuscript disappears and then the manuscript comes back but it comes back with a threat it's um, in the
0: italian owner's bag
1: yeah in the italian owner's bag the one that is probably loaded with black market goods <laughs> except we don't see them
0: he has a big bag but the, all this is so disjointed it's it's there's no consistency to what they're doing it's like they have to stand around The manuscript is gone, but they're not organizing a search just yet. It's Agatha and Travis talking as slow as they can.
1: And PC, uh, I'm going to say her name wrong, PC O'Hanaware. there's a lot of vowels in there, making it a little more difficult to pronounce. And she's trying to tell people what to do, and they're not paying any attention. And then she pulls her gun on them, and it looks like she hasn't had any training at all in how to use firearms. They move people around from room to room. And then suddenly, soon thereafter, Agatha comes back to where they go off to search the building. Sir Campbell, or Sir Malcolm, arranges a search party. And in the meantime, you've got these two mysterious women, the white woman and the black woman. By the way, you never find out what anybody's names are of the three women in the room, other than June, Agatha, and P.C. O'Hanauer. You never find out which of those three women is Audrey, Grace or Nell? Well, I will tell you. Grace is the blonde bimbo attached to Sir Malcolm. Obviously, she's the cookie of the day. Nell and Audrey are apparently... They were tourists. They 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 claim that they were tourists. tourists. And yes, they're American tourists. And why on earth are you in London during the Blitz? Well, it's cheap. It's cheap at this time of year. So, (laughs) okay, whatever. But they're never really clearly identified. And as bodies start stacking up, and the manuscript plays appearing and disappearing and appearing and disappearing. And and the money
0: disappears as well. And the
1: money disappears too.
0: 20,000 pounds. Was taken from him.
1: And that was a single note. I don't remember ever seeing 20,000 pounds as a single note. It was just a That's... single piece of paper. So you've got Agatha, so they kind of arrange a search, and Agatha kind of arranges to interrogate everyone, and yet you still don't find out why these american tourists are there nell and audrey and there's this banter back and forth between nell and audrey with sir malcolm and apparently sir malcolm is doing something that they disapprove of because they say they they make leading remarks and he answers with leading remarks but they don't explain any of
0: it you don't get the sense like in and then there were none you know who this person is you know the judge you know the doctor You know the great white hunter, and then their stories unravel. You discover the secrets behind them, the reason why they're there. There's nothing like this. Nothing like that.
1: Nothing like that. And yet, when you watch this, it's so frustrating because you can see that they could have really had something here, you know, a tense, taut, story where you have these people who shouldn't be here underneath this second-rate hotel being bombed. They shouldn't be here. They've all got their secrets. They've all got reasons to kill. They've all got reasons to steal. You don't get any of it. You don't get any of the backstory. You don't get any reason for them being there. You don't get any of the connections that you should have, particularly between Audrey and Nell and and Sir Malcolm, because it is obvious that they, he didn't seem unsurprised. And this is the other weird piece, is as you, as you watch, you realize that Agatha isn't surprised that Nell and Audrey are there. Well, why isn't Agatha surprised? If they have been following her through the streets of London for the last few weeks or months... That should have been shown. And apparently they have been following her because of the spy novel that has not been published. It is right now waiting for it to be fully vetted because that's what uh, intelligence agencies do to make sure that uh, you're not actually a German spy. It turns out that they're worried about Agatha being a German spy because of it. I'll let you do the story because you do, you do it better.
0: And this only comes up in like the last 20 minutes by that time, before they get into this section, the mystery is resolved. They know who did it. Justice is soon served out in one way or another. And basically, they're waiting for the police. And this is kind of violates, there's kind of a rule of storytelling is that you set up your main plot problem at the beginning and you resolve it last at the end. And if you have a subplot, you bring it up second and you resolve it second at the end. Well, they flipped it this time and to no good and big purpose, because it turns out the novel that she's talking about that was being held up at the publisher and she didn't know why was in real life NRM.
1: The Tommy and Tuppence story, when Agatha wrote a Tommy and Tuppence, she wrote them as not just a contemporary, which she always did, but as very much of its time, NRM takes place in the run-up to 1940, when everyone in England is afraid. They're they're doing their part for the war effort, but there is a name that Agatha...
0: Blackley, a major Blackley, and I'll, I'll stop to a moment to just say that in Midnight Murders, they bring up the reference to Blackley Park, and then they don't tell the audience the whole story. Well, here's the whole story, because Agatha had in the novel a character major, Blackley. There is a location, Blackley Park, in which a lot of the code breaking was done in complete and utter secrecy. Nobody knew about Blackley Park during the war that didn't need to know so when they come across the manuscript for NRM, and actually in real life this was after the book had been published because it didn't need to be vetted but after they read the book and they saw this reference to this blackley they said does agatha know about us and they what did
1: she find out where is the leak
0: so they actually got somebody who knew agatha who also was part of the intelligence community to take her to tea at the ritz and along the among the tea and the crumpets and nice talk he said Oh, I love the novel. By the way, where did Bleckley come from? Where did you get Major Bleckley? That's so odd a name. And she told him I was on a train and I was stopped at the station and the train was stalled and not going anywhere. And I was getting more irritated because we really wanted to go, you know, British Rail being what it is. And I decided to use the name of the station for my character, Blackley. Because she was so annoyed. But she was so annoyed. And then her companion from the intelligence community said, oh. Ah, Oh, oh, more tea?
1: <laughs> and so so they set this up, and then you never get an answer. And these two women have apparently been following her. Now, are they following her because of Major Bleckley, which, again, they didn't finish this train of thought, or are they following her because they are uh, agents for internal revenue? But they are apparently some kind of agent for the British government, but that wasn't really spelled out. And why are they following Agatha? And I distinctly remember there was a passage where she looks at them and she says to Travis something along the lines of, I recognize them. Why would she recognize them? Because they're always behind her on the bus, on the train, at the department store. They're having tea at some at the ABC Tea House. You know, they're two tables over. But we never see any of this. And they know, these two agents, Audrey and Nell, apparently know Sir Malcolm. They say something like, We got our eyes on you, and he doesn't care, but he's apparently somebody also in intelligence.
0: He sort of comes across as a proto bond figure.
1: Yes, he does. Because yes, when... he does. And what's he doing there? And I mean, that's not explained.
0: never when explained. That, none
1: of that is ever explained. None of that is ever explained.
0: But there's one, one particular moment when they decide finally, they decide that there must be somebody there that they don't know about. And of course, in, and then there were none. They searched the island and they don't find anybody. Well, here, Bond, Sir Malcolm, leads them. You know, he has a gun. Uh, there were at least two guns floating around in this in this. I think movie. by the
1: time we were done, there were three.
0: And he leads them out of the room, I into the thought,
1: underground catacombs. Into the
0: underground catacombs, and I would have thought they would have started in the room where Frankie died, and what we didn't mention also is that Eli died as well. He was taken there to be held, I think, because he was suspected of stealing, stealing the, manuscript. the manuscript.
1: And then they find his body, and he's been stabbed through the eye killing him and then of course june dies the chinese translator she dies and there's travis next to her and he's still barely alive clinging to life but he recovers amazingly well and oh i don't know what happened we were playing snap and just wham Bitting i don't know what dark, happened
0: which again sounds there's a lot of these suspicious things where if you just look at them on the surface you can figure out the answer frankie dies from poison the only thing he drunk was a flask from travis Right.
1: And June dies under mysterious circumstances. And who is on the spot?
0: Travis and, Travis. and PC. They Travis. were both left behind.
1: That's right. And then there's the... uh the Italian
0: uh, guy dies, but only after the PC goes into the room to check on him. But who else went into the room?
1: Not nobody as far Things as we like can nobody see. Nobody we could see. And of course, what we're leading up to is that Travis set all of this up. With P.C. Hanauer, whom he had earlier corrupted, she was very corruptible. So, because what they saw was an opportunity to get the manuscript and 20,000 pounds, and the air raid siren was a gramophone record. And so, because, of course, everybody is trained to respond to the air raid warden and go down below, that's what they do. They go down into the cellars where a big plot point vanishes like the mist, That would be the black market goods downstairs. The whole downstairs wasn't handled well. You're not given an explanation for Nell and Audrey other than, oh, it's cheap to visit London at this time of year. And you think, "Uh, no, (laughs) it's a war going on. I don't think they had any tourism. And why is Sir Malcolm there? None of this is addressed. And finally, at the very end, Agatha sits down and has a drink, the first drink in her entire life with Travis,
0: Which he doesn't drink, by the way.
1: Which he doesn't drink, by the way, and she doesn't drink her drink either. She pours him a drink from the other flask, because he was, of course, behind all of this, and he poisoned Frankie, and he murdered June. He also murders PC O'Hanauer, and he was going to murder Agatha Christie as well. But you didn't get enough setup for this. Like, why she chose him in the first place? Nothing. All of these disparate parts, and you just get the feeling all the way through that if they had gone over the script two or three more times, this would have been a really intense, tight, very suspenseful, very anxious movie. Who's going to go next? The walls are closing in on you. Agatha is being pursued by Inland Revenue. Agatha is being pursued by MI5 because of her novel, NRM. Agatha is is desperate for money. Agatha needs to go and make the seedy sale to this skeevy Chinese guy because this is the only way she can get money to pay off the enormous debt that she owes without Inland Revenue finding out about it. But she's afraid to go into this area because it's well known that there are air wardens who are um, robbing bodies of jewelry and possibly even murdering survivors in order to get the jewelry, and you get none of this. Even though I think that's what the script writer, that's what Tom Dalton had in mind, but he did a terrible job bringing it out.
0: So out of the three, we've got one really excellent movie, The Truth of Murder, and two that were really kind of... This one was almost insulting just because it really, like you said, it could have been so much it better. It could have been you so can see it in there. much
1: better. You can see all the seeds. And what are, one of the things that's really frustrating about this is that sometimes you will watch a movie. Uh, we saw the Phryne Fisher movie. And if you've ever seen the Phryne Fisher movie and said, oh, I'll never watch that TV show, you're making a mistake because the TV show is really fun. But the movie was so terrible that it would have to be trashed and completely rewritten. This movie is more frustrating because you can see what a fantastic movie there is struggling to get out. It wasn't handled well. It wasn't rewritten. It wasn't made into the movie that it could have been. That you can see all the structures in place. And the lethargic direction did not help.
0: Now, what brings up a point here is after seeing these three movies, just how well Agatha can function in the fictional world.
1: And she's becoming a fictional character. There's only the three movies that I know of. There's these three movies and there's the Doctor Who episode where she is a fictional character. Well, no, there are others because, of course, there's the Vanessa Redgrave and Dustin Hoffman uh, hatchet job where Agatha is a fictional character. And that was just truly awful. Murder by the Book. She's kind of fictionalized, but not really. There's also the documentary.
0: A Life in Pictures.
1: And she's kind of fictionalized in there. That's the one where you see a lot of the rolled fondant mice. And they do a really nice job with the fondant. (laughs) With the fondant cake and uh, in that that, uh, documentary. And that is not what you should be focusing on, but there you go. Uh, but, But I don't think there are other movie adaptations with her, but there are getting to be a lot of books.
0: There are a lot of books. There's The Girl on the Orient Express, in which she's counseling someone else about a failing marriage, I believe. There's murder at Maloan Hall, which is a traditional mystery. At This is a fictional house, but she is there and she's actually it's the head of the, the housekeepers.
1: Yeah, Felidia or something like that. And wasn't there also murder at Greenway? And then there was the set murder of three. There was the set of three as the Agatha as the secret agent or
0: four. Four books by Andrew Wilson. Yes. Starts with a talent for murder. And those were really well written. And those took Agatha. It's Agatha in the time after her separation from Archie. And the first one takes place at the Canary Islands, which is actually where she went with Carlo and her daughter to write the mystery of the blue train.
1: What these three movies are doing is giving us a chance to start seeing Agatha as a fictional character in a parallel universe where the the setup is a little bit different. The situations are a little bit different. And what does this uh woman do you know her life fell apart completely when uh her mother died and Archie divorced her for the cookie but she's intelligent she is clever she is observant
0: independent
1: She is independent she has her own money she has her own career you know she makes a good character she makes a surprisingly good character and if you can handle Max Mallowin properly she even gets a second chance at love
0: I think there's a lot of gaps in her life in which you can fill with the types of stories that an author wants to use her for, whether it's a women's fiction or a spy tale or a mystery tale. You could have it be a true crime tale as well. Uh, She's very flexible in that respect, and it's more so than I can think of any other author being used in this way.
1: I have seen a few things with Conan Doyle. I mean, Conan Doyle obviously showed up as a fictional character in Agatha and the Truth of Murder, but I don't think he has made the leap to film. He has been in books. He solved murders with Harry Houdini, I think.
0: Yeah, there was a TV show, I think, that didn't last very long, less than a season.
1: Now, they did three movies in a row, released in 2018, 2019, and 2020, and unfortunately, each one got worse than the one before. And so we did not see anything in 2021, and we probably won't see anything in this Christmas of 2022. I don't know that Tom Dalton was tapped for another one, as he Um, got worse and worse. (laughs) So this may be all we see.
0: No, the TV series was Houdini and Doyle, and it was 10 episodes ordered by various Fox in the U.S., ITV in the United Kingdom, and it was canceled after 10 episodes. But it was them, I think it was probably the kind of thing where it's like, imagine X-Files only with Houdini and Doyle, because one of them would be the skeptic and the other is the believer.
1: In case you're wondering, Conan Doyle would be the believer and Houdini (laughs) would be the skeptic. He did magic for a living. He knew how it worked.
0: Yep. That concludes the three movie series that we saw. So we'll go on to something else next time.
1: I think we're considering uh, moving into something completely different with Agatha Christie. It's the Japanese anime with Poirot and Miss Marple together agatha
0: christie's great detectives poirot and marple and the first one we'll see will be end house mystery
1: and how they are going to shoehorn miss marple into a cartoon about poirot well we'll find out folks
0: (laughs) tune in again next time for the next episode of agatha christie she watched thank you very much for listening this is bill paschel
1: I'm Teresa and remember if you visit our website Peschelpress.com, you can see where we're going and what we'll be doing and uh, if you want to run into us at an event, that's where you'll get the information.
0: You at the movies. Agatha Christie she watched is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel, produced by Bill Peschel. theme song Call to Adventure by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on mystery she watched, email Peschel at Peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to Peschel at Peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.